We were once foolish. Now why? I know. That may seem foolish, and it probably is, but that's not the term that Paul uses. Foolish is not necessarily somebody who's stupid or silly, especially if he's hitting the pot with his spoon. In this context, what Paul probably means is that they're ignorant. There are people who are foolish, who are ignorant. They just don't know. They haven't been told. You know, they, they, they don't know the truth. They haven't experienced the truth. They, they disregard, they, or if they do, if they have heard the truth, what they'll do is they'll disregard the message and say, well, I just, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. But they disregard the message of the cross of Christ. See, we, we, we have a hard heart when we don't know Christ. It can't get in. And you and I, we could speak until we're blue in the face to somebody who doesn't believe in Christ and doesn't trust in Him, and it won't make a difference. What has to happen is the Holy Spirit has to soften their heart. And you know how the Holy Spirit does that many times? He does that many times. He does that through us. He uses us by being kind to them, not, not condoning what they're doing, not going along with everything they're doing, but showing them love and compassion it softens their heart. And then the message can get in and the darkness goes away. It's that light shining in a dark room. This is how the evil of this world wants us to remain. The evil in this world wants us to remain in darkness. He tries everything possible to make us stay in darkness, to ignore the truth, ignorant of it. I want you to imagine, I want you to pretend, let's pretend for a moment. Let's pretend that God comes to you and he tells you that two weeks from now, on Tuesday, your life will be over. And on Tuesday, he's calling you home. And it distresses you. It concerns you. You're thinking, man, I have so much I want to do between now and Tuesday. What do I do? And so God tells you, listen. Here's what I'm going to allow you to do. I'm going to allow you to take one suitcase and bring anything you want with you. One suitcase. Now, I'm sure you're probably thinking that the next thing I'm going to ask you is, what would you put in a suitcase? But the question I have for you is, why would you even take a suitcase? Open your Bibles to Titus. Chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 3 this morning. You know, last week, we, we saw that Paul was reminding us how we are to live our lives as followers who are redeemed, who are purified. The way we are to live is supposed to be in stark contrast to the world around us. Because our lives have changed. Our lives that were, that was the way our lives were before we knew Christ, before we experienced the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, our lives were different then. And some people say, well, yeah, Pastor, but I wasn't a bad person. Well, no, you may not have been that bad, but understand that apart from Christ, we're all dead. Apart from Him, we're terrible. We may not have been murderers, we may not have been thieves, but. If we don't know him, we're lost. 
But our lives are changed when we have that encounter with Christ, when we, when we seek his face, his face and he, we see him and he tells us, you're forgiven. Paul's going to provide us a rationale this week for why we should live lives that are different than the world. Because the world will tell you, well, the world's life is better. We have more fun. Sin is fun. If it wasn't, we wouldn't do it. But what we don't understand is, everything has a consequence. So why would we live lives in Christ? Why would we be different than the world? So let's look at verse 3 of Titus 3. Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, Passing our days in malice and envy, hatred by others, and hating one another. Now, you can understand why Paul would write that, because we know, if you know anything about Paul, Paul was, was a Pharisee, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he, was, he had obtained letters from the high council in order to go and find Christians and put them in prison, and then he would vote, they would vote on whether they, that person should be killed, and he many times voted yes. In fact, when he encountered Christ, he was on the road to Damascus with letters to find the people in Damascus who were believers and to put them in prison. And God knocks him to the ground, blinds him, and he sees Christ. And from that point on, he's a changed man. Now, Paul's using the past tense here. He says, we were once. The adjectives that Paul uses here describe our former lives It should not describe our current life. If you're a believer in Christ, the words, the adjectives that Paul uses here, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, hating others, hating one another, being hated, that should not be what people can say about our lives today. But unfortunately... In our humanness, we have a tendency to carry into our redeemed life some of these attributes of our past life. So, we have to surrender them. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. This is probably one of the verses that really, I, I really comes to my mind when I think of, and I, I, I keep coming back to this because it's still out there. Um, many of you know my feelings about the Enneagram that's been going through a lot of churches. In fact, our denomination has used it, and I'm really not happy about it. The Enneagram, you take a test, and it gives you these, tells you what you are and who works well with you, who doesn't. It identifies who you are, and I'm like, wait a minute. No, no, no. Paul says here that if we're in Christ, we're a new creation. We don't have to be like that. I don't need to know who I can and can't get along with. I should get along with everybody. Well, what about those people who persecute you? I should get along with them too. Love those who persecute you. Love those who hate you. Don't condemn them. Bless them. Reflecting on our own past experiences should serve to compel us, should motivate us to look at those in the world who do not know Christ, who have not experienced his his love, with gentleness and consideration. 
They're not where we are, but they're where we once, once were. And we should have compassion on them. It doesn't mean we allow them, we, we don't call them out. When it's like, you know, you probably shouldn't be doing that. But we don't, we don't condemn them. They will be condemned ultimately by Christ himself. Paul uses this term, we, we're, we ourselves were once. He suggests that what was once true of us is now true of those who are unsaved. Our unsaved neighbors, that's the same way they are. They're foolish. We were once foolish. Now why? I know. That may seem foolish, and it probably is, but that's not the term that Paul uses. Foolish is not necessarily somebody who's stupid or silly, especially if he's hitting the pot with his spoon. In this context, what Paul probably means is that they're ignorant. There are people who are foolish, who are ignorant. They just don't know. They haven't been told. You know, they, they, they don't know the truth. They haven't experienced the truth. They, they disregard, they, or if they do, if they have heard the truth, what they'll do is they'll disregard the message and say, well, I just, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I had, I've told you this a couple weeks ago, I had a, a person online on one of the videos I put out, and I actually got into a conversation with them. And they thought that, um, they thought that God killed everybody in the Bible, and Moses never got to heaven. There was a whole list of things they said. And I'm like, how do I respond to this? I did it with compassion. And I was told, I told by this person I was the first person who ever answered the question without getting angry. And I got to think that that's terrible. Why should I be angry? If somebody threatens, if somebody threatens, my, threatens my belief, that's okay. If you go against my belief, you don't believe what I believe, but I'll tell you what I believe. But they disregard the message of the cross of Christ. Paul, remember back in Titus 1.1, he says, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. It's knowledge of the truth. We were foolish. We lacked spiritual understanding. We lacked discernment and spiritual realities due to this darkening impact of sin and the darkness in the world that's on our lives. Again, Paul says in Ephesians 4.18, they, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. See, we, we have a hard heart when we don't know Christ. It can't get in. And you and I, we could speak until we're blue in the face to somebody who doesn't believe in Christ and doesn't trust in Him, and it won't make a difference. What has to happen is the Holy Spirit has to soften their heart. And you know how the Holy Spirit does that many times? He does that many times. He does that through us. He uses us by being kind to them, not, not condoning what they're doing, not going along with everything they're doing, but showing them love and compassion, it softens their heart. And then the message can get in and the darkness goes away. It's that light shining in a dark room. This is how the evil of this world wants us to remain. The evil in this world wants us to remain in darkness. He tries everything possible to make us stay in darkness. To ignore the truth, ignorant of it. 
And because of our foolishness, we become disobedient. It's not that we're just doing things that we shouldn't do, but it's that we have this attitude of disobedience. This, yeah, that. Intentional disobedience. If my kids do something wrong, they just said they're not supposed to, I can handle that. I, I, I correct them, and I'm good. But the minute, the minute I, they show a determined, premeditated disobedience, bar the door, because it's going to get bad. I don't tolerate it. I do not tolerate it, because that's intentional. Like a dog returning to its vomit. Oh, I'm not gonna, I don't want to return to my vomit. I ate it once, didn't like it the first time. That's why it's there. But, but we do that. We return to it. So we've got to be careful because it says in Scripture that if we keep returning to that, if we keep having intentional disobedience, it sears our souls. And you know what happens when we see our souls are seared? There's no way to get into it. It's going to take something extremely supernatural to change our hearts. But we're disobedient. We're willfully and consistently disregarding authority, rejecting obedience to God's law, and we resist human authority. Like I said last week, there are times when we are to resist human authority. When it goes against God's word, we have to resist it. It, it, We have to. If they come in and tell me as a pastor that I have certain things I have to do, and that goes against scripture, they they better come with handcuffs and they better put me in jail because I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to. If it goes against God's word, I will not do it. And in our disobedience, what happens? We're led astray. There was a popular Hellenistic moral exhortation that said, don't go astray. See, you you get led astray. Why? Because you're not paying attention. I don't know about you, I've done this before. I'm driving along and I'm in, I'm in auto mode. You know, I've driven this way 1,000 times. I'm not paying attention to what I'm doing. All of a sudden, my mind says, turn here, and I turn here, and I'm like, why am I turning here? I, I, I'm, I'm supposed to go four miles farther down the road. What am I doing? Or if you trust your phones, I've heard stories of phones telling people to turn in, and they turn right, and they turn right, and they're in a lake. You, you, you're, you're not thinking. You're not, you're not listening to what God's telling you to do. So you get led astray. There was, and so don't go astray. When our lives are marked by foolishness and disobedience, that's exactly what's going to happen. You want to know why people fall so far into the pits of sin and degradation? Because they were foolish and they were disobedient and it just led to something more intense, worse and worse and worse, and you finally get to that point where you realize, I don't like me. I don't like being me. Because I was led astray. We're easily led away from the path of faith. And this is one of the cruelest tricks that Satan has that he uses against us. We believe what we're doing is cool, right? Well, everybody else is doing it. All the in people are doing it. What breaks my heart is when I, I see celebrities who are supposedly Christian and then you find them doing things and they don't think there's anything wrong with it. They're doing something wrong. It's like, wait a minute. You think that's okay? You have been led astray. You've been foolish. You've been disobedient. And now you're led astray. 
We think it's cool, but in reality, it's hot because we're getting closer to the fires of hell every time. We think we're right, but we're wrong. Peter warns us in 1 Peter. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There's a couple of things in here. First of all, a lion, when it's roaring, isn't exactly quietly, you know, you, I've, watched, I've watched National Geographic. <laughs> the lions don't sit there and roar after, as they go after, they go, try to sneak up on a, a herd of gazelles. What do they do? They quietly sneak up. So when he's roaring, he knows he's got them, and he's scaring them, and he's going after them. That's what Satan does. He has you within his grasp. He knows he's going to get you. He's weakened you enough. You're the weakest one in the herd. And he's going to get you. But Peter says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of, that we're all experiencing the same thing. We all have experienced this. None of us are immune to it. So we've got to understand, we can't do this alone. We need others around us. We need to turn to the Holy Spirit. We need to find some way to get out of, to be sober, to get out of that point of time where we're going to fall into the trap of the evil one. If we're not careful, we're going to follow after various passions and pleasures. Now, I want you to understand, it's not that God doesn't want us to have pleasure. It's just that we, he needs it directed correctly. Marriage is a wonderful, amazing gift of God. But there are things in this world that try to pull us away from that. God wants us to have the pleasure of a spouse who loves us dearly and we love dearly and we're solely committed to them and them alone. There's great pleasure in that. Talk to any of the older people in the church who've been married for 50 plus years. There's great pleasure in that. Oh, there's hardship. Oh, there's times of struggle. But there's great pleasure. We're led astray from the light of Christ. We we have the lust for power, for pleasure, and for worldly knowledge. We become slaves to our own desires. As we fall down this rabbit hole of the world, hole of the world, we our passions and pleasures that, that corrupts our hearts. You know, a lot of times people, they're, they're, you know, they'll say, "Well, there's, you know, if you, there's nothing that's a, you know, a gateway sin. There's no gateway drug," and and I'm not so sure about that. I know that all the states around us are now starting to legalize marijuana, and see, I truly believe that. In certain circumstances, I believe that God created, created things in this world to help us. And I believe there are medical, good medical practices we can use cannabis for certain things. But I don't believe in an open, buy it wherever you want. Because I believe it is a path that leads us to destruction. And there, while some of us may say, I'll, I'll, never, I'll never touch it. There are others who will say, they touch it once and that's it. They're hooked. And that's just the beginning. So is there, is, are there, are there, yes, there are gateway drugs. And on top of that, you know, think about this. There's also gateway sins. You know, look at the magazines today. 
Look at the magazines that you can buy on the regular, on just, you know, that aren't terrible, too terrible. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't looked at magazines in a long time, except for certain ones, <laughs> like Guns and Ammo. But, you know, uh, even those, you've got to watch the advertisements. But you look at the magazines, you're like, what are we, what are we doing? And, and how, how are we teaching our youth? When they grab these magazines, whether they're young girls who get a false sense of what beauty is and what glamour is, or the young men who get a false sense of what sexual attractiveness is. And that just leads down the road to deeper and worse things. And I'm not puritanical in this. I just think we need to teach people how to resist temptation. And it does lead to places, rabbit holes, we don't want to go down. We chase those, and our hearts get corrupted, and our lives become lives full of malice and envy. Our pursuits of passion and pleasures, not only does it enslave our hearts and enslave us to something that, that, number one, wasted a lot of time, number two, leads us to paths we never should have gone down, but they'll also, they never satisfy us. Our relationships become marked with, with this idea of revenge, for what has been done to us, and that's what's called malice. We want revenge. Somebody does something to me, and I get angry about it, and I just want to get them back. Well, scripture tells us, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's not, my, my, it's not, my, not mine to get. God will take care of it. Maybe not today, but one day he will. Peter, again, tells us in 1 Peter 2, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. See, when we, when we harbor revenge, when we harbor malice and hatred and anger towards somebody in our hearts, it tears us apart, and there's no room for the Holy Spirit in there. We push everything else aside. And I'm, I'm, I want to tell you, I've seen it happen in the church. It's not just out there in the world. It's in the church, where people get so angry with somebody in the church that they can no longer even be around them. And I'm sorry, that's wrong. That's a sin. And we need to repent of that. Yes, do sometimes people irritate us? Yes, it happens. But you know what? We need to show them Christ. We need to be patient with them. Look at, I, I, look at, I look at Jesus, and I look at his disciples, and I think, what a bunch of numbskulls. They were with him 24-7. They saw everything he did. And still, you see throughout Scripture, he says, do you still not believe? Do you still not understand? You can tell he's a little frustrated. But, he's, but he knows it's going to take the Holy Spirit for them to understand. Because afterwards, oh, they understand it all. In fact, they do amazing things when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And so I sit there and think, okay, so what about us? Well, folks, we have the Holy Spirit now. There's no reason why we can't get along with everybody. Now, that doesn't mean, like I say, we're best friends with them. But that does mean that we show them compassion, we show them love, we show them, we care for them. We may not always like what they do, but we love them. And that's what we're supposed to do. Because if we don't, we'll end up being hated by others and we'll end up hating one another. The Greek word here used for being hated is stuge, uh, see if I can say this right, stugetoi. 
which is only found here. It's the only place in the New Testament that that Greek word is used. And this idea carries it to be detestable, repulsive, disgusting to others. So when, when we live lives that we're not supposed to, that leads us to this point where we're hating others, we're hating ourselves, and other people hate us, we are disgusting to others. Detestable and repulsive. It, it, it reflects this stage of degradation where I get so disgusted and disgusting that I can't even stand myself. And many times it's where we need to get to in order for us to change our lives. It depicts that state of degradation where we become disgusting and vile. And in the process, we hate others. Why do we hate others? Because we hate ourselves. We can't stand ourselves. Hating one another marks this culmination of this active operation, mutual antagonism. If you're, gonna, you're not going to like me, I don't like you, you hate me, I hate me, let's just hate and not worry about it. Just hate. And it accelerates and it dissolves all the bonds of relationships in our human society. Just look at politics today. Oh my goodness. And I'm not a, believe me, I'm not a Trumper. I don't like the man, be honest with you. That's my choice. I may vote for him because I like his politics, but I don't like the man. Okay? But there are people who hate him so much, they'll do anything to destroy him. That's the point we get to. And there are some people who do feel the same way towards our current president. Republicans aren't innocent in this. We've got to be careful. We need to love Everyone. Because if we don't, we're going to find ourselves like Paul. In Romans 7.24, he says, Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? See, if the liberation from our life marked by this foolishness, this disobedience, this being led astray and seeking worldly passions and pleasures, if it's in any way, it is a result of our own human wisdom, our own willpower, our own strength. It breeds pride itself instead of humility. So Paul is emphasizing our deliverance is entirely the work of someone else. We cannot get ourselves out of the pits that we are in where we're foolish, led astray, disobedient, hating others. We can't just wake up one morning and say, you know what, today, I'm not going to hate anybody. I'm just going to will it. It ain't going to happen because, guess what? There's, there's this, this, this creature that God created called Hasatan, the, the, the accuser. He knows, oh, I'll show him. I'll put the worst, most vile people in his way. He won't be able to hold it for five minutes. And that's exactly what happens. But, and what an awesome word, but, in Titus 3, 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. See, our redemption, our ability to change from the way we were is rooted in a specific moment in time, in a specific occurrence 
when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. When Christ, we just celebrated Christmas, when Christ was born in that manger, that's when it began. And for almost three full years, for three, almost three and a half years, or three, probably close to three and a half years, he showed it, and then on the cross, it all culminated. Paul goes on in Romans 2, he says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. You, you, look, at, you look at God. I've been, I've been, I'm in Matthew right now. I'm recording, doing audio recordings of all the books of the Bible. That's my goal. So God can't take me home. I can't come back until I'm done. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, record, I'm reading it, and I'm recording it, and putting pictures behind it. And you can find it on my, my YouTube page. But I'm, I'm, every day is another chapter. And I'm in this place, I'm in the place where it, it talks about, in Matthew... It goes to the place where Christ is helping those who come to him. Like the two blind men. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And there's these two blind men calling out, Help us, son of David, help us. And the disciples are getting peeved. They're like, tell them to be quiet. And Jesus says, come here. What do you want me to do? They said, we want to have our sight. He says, okay. Your faith is giving you your sight. And they see. Jesus could have just ignored them. He could have just kept walking, like most of us would do. But what does he do? In his kindness, he reaches out to them and he touches them. Or the leper. The leper comes to him. And Jesus not only heals him, but he touches him, which you would never do. Because that's how you spread leprosy. Jesus touches him and heals him. That's the kindness of God. And the kindness of Christ is to lead us to repentance. This term appeared, refers to the salvation that's revealed in Jesus Christ himself. The salvation of Christ embodies, shows us the face of the nature of God is our Savior. It is God who saves us. His name, Jesus' name, we call him Jesus, that's the Greek word. The, the Hebrew word is Yeshua. And it's actually Yeshua Amashia, which is Jesus Christ, Jesus the Anointed One. Yeshua. Yeshua means God saves God saves us. His kindness, reflecting his compassionate kindness that motivates him to bestow forgiveness and blessings on us. Yeah, he was kind to his disciples. I know they deserve probably be smacked around a little bit, but he doesn't. He patiently, you may say, do you not listen? Are you not hearing? And then he explains and like, oh, now we get it. But he went to the cross. He was innocent. Why? Because of his kindness, he went to the cross for you and me. His love, which is philanthropia in Greek, his affection for humanity, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God loves us, even in our sin, even when we are so vile. We're so vile we hate ourselves, but God still loves us. His affection for humanity, evident in his demonstration of love, for us, despite our sins and our degradation. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, he says, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, in human terms, what we usually do, if someone does something wrong to us, what do we do? We want them to say they're sorry. Say you're sorry, and don't ever do it again. Or you need to rectify it. You need to show me that you have changed. 
and then I'll forgive you. That's what we do in human terms. But what does Jesus say? He says, you haven't even changed yet, and I still love you, and I'm forgiving you already. Before we even repented, Christ died for our sins. Why? Why would he do that? I, I, I can't find any reason inside of me as to why God would save me the way I am, the way I was before I knew him, where I was disobedient, foolish, and seeking the passions and pleasures of my, of my sin. He saved us. Why? Why would, he, why would he do that? It's not because I'm so sweet. I'm not. He shows me how sour I really am. Anything that I possess that is of any merit, anything that is good in me is not because of me. It's because of Him. All the blessings I have in my life, all my family, the resources I have, the knowledge I have in my head, what I know, and believe me, I know things, how do I even know this? I have no idea. Sometimes I wonder why he keeps songs in my head. I mean, my kids will sit and start listening to music and I'll start singing a song. How do you know all these songs? I said, I don't know. I just do. But those are all blessings for God. It's not me. It's him. People say, you know, I'll do something. And they're, oh, that's awesome. I say, thanks, but I, it's not me doing it. God gave me the ability to do that. Not me. It's not me. That's why Paul says in verse 5, beginning of verse 5 of Titus 3, he says he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. You did nothing to deserve salvation. Nothing. But in his mercy, he gives you salvation. We may do things that seem righteous at times. We We try to be good people. I always go back to when Jesus says there's nobody good but the Father. But we try to do, but that's not why God saves us. I always always say this, listen. (laughs) I I did nothing to be saved. All I did was surrender my life. That wasn't an act. It wasn't a work. I just decided I wasn't going to live that life. It's yours, God. Take it. He saved me before I even did that. So I couldn't even do that. He saved me before that. I just had to walk in it. But nothing I do is of any accord. It was only because of his mercy. I do good things now, but it's not because he saves me because of that. I do good things because he saved me. As sinners, we neither accomplish such deeds, we didn't even possess the ability to do good things. Because believe me, most of the time when people are doing good things and they don't know Christ, it's not because they just want to be good people. It's because there's something they want out of it. And maybe it's just because they want to feel good about themselves. Or they want to make up for something that they did. They think that they're, you know, the whole Zen idea. I'm going to balance my life out. If I do all these good things, then I could still do these bad things. And, you know, God will weigh me on the scales. Sorry. There's only one scale, and the scale is either Jesus or no Jesus. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know. Now, it doesn't mean we, can't, we can go through life not doing good things, but we do good things because he died for us. The gospel unequivocally rejects the notion of achieving salvation through human endeavor or effort. 
it's interesting, I was reading, um, there was a missionary when we were up at a family camp this last year. There's a missionary in there in um, Cambodia and Burma, or Thailand. And, and one of the things he says in his latest update is, is that they had some people, there's a church they're going to there, and there are people coming out of Buddhism, and they go to the church, and the people who are teaching them have to be very careful because what happens is they start twisting the Buddhism into the Christianity. And what they'll do is they'll start doing good, thinking that if they can win their merit, Buddhism is how you live your life and whether you're going to be reincarnated to something greater. And they take that and they twist that into it. And God says, no, that doesn't work. Only Christ is the only way to salvation. It's not by what you do. It's by him and him alone. God rescued us due to his mercy. In our state of wretchedness, he benevolently refrained from administering deserving punishment. We deserve death. People always tell me, well, so-and-so deserves. No, we deserve death. And he gives us life. And he gives us blessings way beyond anything we could ever imagine. He saves us. The phrase because of is literally according to, kata, which emphasizes that his mercy serves as a standard for gauging the magnitude of his saving grace. His mercy and his grace are, as his mercy is greater, his grace is greater. His mercy is greater, his grace gets greater. They're on the same level playing field. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, he says, For for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I cannot boast in my salvation. I can boast in Christ. I can't boast because I've done so many wonderful things and I deserve salvation because I don't. I don't deserve it. So how? How does God do it? And that's what Paul talks about in the second part of Titus 3.5. He says, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now while this may bring to your mind the idea of baptism, this washing refers to being purified inwardly by God's grace through the Holy Spirit. You and I, when we trust in Christ, are washed clean. My sins are of scarlet, have now been washed white as snow. They're gone. Purified. Our lives are expunged of all those things that we used to live in. The foolishness, the seeking the pleasures, the disobedience, the hatred. Those should be gone. All the adjectives that describe our former life. We're now made ready for the Holy Spirit to take up residence inside of us, in our lives. Jesus says in John 14, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. This is right before Jesus is ascending to the Father. He tells him, I'm leaving you, but I'm going to send someone with you to be with you. He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. The Holy Spirit's been here the whole time. We see places in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody and they, and they prophesy, or there are places in Scripture where they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth, um, Mary's cousin, was filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit at birth, from the time in his womb. He was filled, in his mother's womb, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Most of the time, the Holy Spirit was around them or on them, but he never in them. But now the Holy Spirit's here, and the Holy Spirit's going to be in us. He's going to take up residence in us. The world cannot receive it because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. God, God, Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. How is that possible? Because the Holy Spirit's with us at all times. And we need to listen to him. He will lead us. He'll remind us of the things of Christ. He'll remind us that when we're doing something wrong, he'll talk to our conscience. I don't understand how it works, but he does. He talks to our conscience, and our conscience tells us, you shouldn't be doing this. And we need to listen to it, because we know it's right. When we believe in Christ and accept his free gift of salvation, we receive a life-giving, living water of the Holy Spirit that washes us clean. Also in the book of John, John 7, it says, In the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to, be, to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet been glorified. Jesus, this is a Passover before the last Passover. And Jesus stands up and he says them. He says, he says, whoever believes in me, as the Spirit has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's saying the Holy Spirit's going to fill you, and out of that will flow to everybody else around you. So you want to know how we're, we are able to be, to be kind to those who hate us? Because of the Holy Spirit in us, telling us, love them. Because when you love someone who hates you, you heap burning coals on their head. Now, you don't literally do it, but ultimately, the time's going to come and they're going to realize that, oh, wait a minute, I was mean to them and they showed compassion to me. It may not be in this life, it may be in the next. But for them, it may be too late. If we belong to Christ, we have the Holy Spirit living within us. 6 and 7 of Titus 3 says, Whom he poured out, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are saved by grace so that we might become heirs with Christ. Jesus will rule all, and we will rule with him. We are heirs. We are his, son, his brothers. We have been adopted into God's family. Grafted in, we're saved by grace so that we might become heirs with Christ. Paul declares in Romans 8, 17, he says, and if children, then heirs. He says, if you're children, then you're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Yeah, we're going to suffer in this life. And we may not be terrible, but by the end of our lives, we're all going to die. But then when we're resurrected, we'll be with him. What Paul is saying is that we will participate in the sufferings of Christ presently and will partake in his glory later as co-heirs and joint heirs. And this term, heirs of God, points to our relationship with God the Father as his children. 1 Peter 1.4 says, An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Things of this world are going to perish, but not what we're going to inherit. Jesus is the heir, and we are the co-heirs with him. Verse 8 of Titus 3. It says, This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The sin and rebellion against God's will, 
will act as obstacles to the Holy Spirit filling us. Succumbing to sinful temptations and worldly desires, losing control and engaging in wrongdoing, reverting to our pre-salvation selves. All these hinder the Holy Spirit from guiding us, influencing, governing our, our behaviors. And it grieves Him. We need to allow Him to manifest Himself in our lives as He desires with expressions of fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruits of the Spirit. In moments of sin, prompt confession of our transgressions to God is crucial. We need to live lives of repentance daily because we're sinners. We, that's what we do. We sin. We're not, none of us is perfect. If any of us says we're without sin, we're, we're wrong. We're liars. We all sin. I sin all the time. I have thoughts that come to my head. I, oh. No can't have that thought. Forgive me, Father, for having that thought. Confession is crucial, accompanied by a renewed commitment to being filled with the Spirit. Because if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our lives are to be marked in a stark contrast to the world. Around us, in the opposite of what the lives were before Christ, the world is living in 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 a way that is walking along the pits of hell. So we must treat those who have not embraced salvation through Jesus Christ with compassion and gentleness. Don't let the characteristics of your former life define your life in Christ because you've been transformed through the work of Christ in your lives. And we shouldn't be proud, prideful and we should not be arrogant because nothing we've done has saved us. Nothing in this world has saved us apart from Christ. So taking that suitcase full of stuff from this world, why? We have much greater things to look forward to as heirs with Christ. It's because of God's grace that we must devote ourselves to good works, which are excellent and profitable. Sin and rebellion will hinder the Holy Spirit in our lives. But by confession, prompt confession, and renewed commitment to being filled with the Spirit, we can continue to walk in the light as he is in the light. We are God's heirs through grace with Christ participating in the glorious inheritance. We need to live lives that reflect that. Lives of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Not for our glory, but for his. Let's pray.